Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire episode 97, The Soiled Knight in a Feast for Crows, Aries Oakheart. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. A one and done, a hit and run. Here we are, Aries Oakheart. <laughs> hit it and quit it. Like Aries Oakheart couldn't. Like, he hit it and then quit life? That's what he did. He couldn't quit area, and so he quit life instead. Hit it, then quit life. Uh, Ben, there, Aries Oakheart, tragic guy. Sad. He's a big, dumb, sad idiot. I'm sad for him, because he really tried with his whole brain cell. He did. He did. And by brain cell, I mean dick. He tried. He's like, I don't know which sword to use right now. He's so confused with all this sword play. Hey, everyone. We're so glad that you are here listening to a new point of view. Like we just said, hit it, quit it. Aries Oakheart, one chapter. <laughs> wasn't even meant to be a point of view, honestly. He was an accident in this story. He was. He was. Uh, as you all know, once upon a time, George had this whole five-year gap planned. <laughs> Um, and, you know, instead, what we all got was a real-life, what, four-year gap, then another six-year one, and here we are, in the year of our Lord, 2020. Hey, that's not it's nice. Like our Lord gap. is George, and he actually has been writing a lot lately, so good for him, finding that's inspiration. That's true, he has. He has. He's... You're right, you're right. I should uh, give credit where credit is due, positive reinforcement. <laughs> no, honestly, he's writing a lot more than I am. In this here uh, quarantine, so go George, keep it up. Uh, I honestly, I get inspired reading the Soiled Knight. That sounds really shallow and stupid, but the Soiled Knight is good. Actually, is the discourse I'm bringing today. Uh, it actually is. It, it's, it's a so good chapter. detailed. It, it's a good chapter that does a great job of magnifying a lot of the other things going on in the story. And I mean, Ares is kind of shitty. Um, he is, but I think that he's great and interesting because he's makes all the other characters interesting. Yeah, oh yeah. He's a he's definitely like a big dumb idiot, but like you can't help but feel for the guy. You know what I mean? You can't help you like, oh you're so close. Kinda like Quentin, like when we read through Quentin's chapters, that was same thing. You know, you you're like, Oh, you're gonna make some mistakes, aren't ya? And then he'd make them and you'd be like, Oh, so close. So close, buddy. Yeah, but I think that Ari's wanted to make mistakes. <laughs> orgasms. He wanted to make orgasms. He wanted to make mistakes, and he's like, I'm going to make some more mistakes. And <laughs> yeah, he just couldn't accept the fact that, you know, he wanted to have sex, and that's okay. Yeah. I mean. I mean, it's not his sister. So, and we will definitely be addressing some of those very heavy Jamie parallels sans the incest, sans the snakes. Uh but first, wow, the sand snakes. <laughs> yes. We do have some housekeeping. We aren't going to pull any tweets or emails of note for this today. We will just get some announcements done and then jump in because we have a lot to cover in this Aries episode. It's kind of going to be like an Aries overhaul of his whole life history, the whole nine yards. A little bit of lightning round we'll talk about soon, but first we have had such an influx of new patrons over on Patreon. 
where we have an account, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We want to welcome you. We are so thrilled that you're here. You are the best, and there are some new perks. I hear my little birds are telling me new perks being tossed around at Girls Gone Canon HQ for Thunder Tier and above patrons. Uh, we're becoming a bit more re-engaged, so stay tuned for that. That's all I can say for now. I can't tease much more than that, but something soon, something new. You'll hear about it. We're evaluating things and changing the horseshoes on some of our horses. Apparently that's a thing people actually had to do. Still do. Still. It's not past tense. Yeah, it's like, a ask our mistress thing. of horse, Raj. She would She would. Probably that's true. Lady Raj, mistress of horse. Bring her on yeah, for that Lady horse Raj. episode. Is she a Sagittarius? I don't think so, but may as well ask her again. Yeah, I mean, like, that would make sense, you know, also because part horse, but regardless, uh, for all of those horses, patrons, uh, we do have a patron episode for July, and this month is in the Song of Ice and Fire episode. We have been making our way through the free cities, but we're gonna, we're gonna take a quick pit stop in time. Oh, oh. Uh, oh. Actually, we cover a lot of the history of things in the Free Cities episodes, but regardless, we are making a pit stop, and we've decided to finally continue our uh, coverage of the Fire and Blood Volume 1 book. Uh, not all the way until the end. I know it seems like we were going to do that. I can understand why you would think that, because there's so little left of the book that we have been drawing out for months. But we are going to do uh, the Under the Regents chapters for Egg, spelled A3G, because there's three of them, and he's Egg on the third. And those are the Hooded Hand, War Piece, and Cattle Shows. Um, I guess that's really what it's entitled. And The Voyage of Alan Oakenfist. Yes, read up. Under the Regents, live egg, die egg. I'm uh I'm really actually kind of excited for this. I really have been enjoying the Free Cities, but I think we need a minute and for those of you that have finished Fire and Blood Volume 1, you might recognize that we are going to cover Under the Regents because at the very end of Fire and Blood comes what is arguably a very weird ending, but also a very interesting ending where you learn about the Lycini Spring, and I think that will definitely come into play when we cover Lease in our free cities. So we don't want to give away all of our cards yet, you know, keep our deck hidden, just like George, our the man cards. himself. Our wild cards. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should do. We should cover wild cards instead. Actually, I should probably read those at some point. Um. Anyway. My yeah, so that's what we're going to do. And of course, you know, there's news coming out about House of the Dragon and uh. check out our episodes about the dance. Yes, so we actually have, what, four parts up of the Dance of the Dragons leading up into this part five, this Under the Regents. Yeah. So exciting. I do like this ending of Fire and Blood. I was like, who gives a shit about Aegon Third? Then at the end, I was like, I need to know what happens to my son. <laughs> I would die for him. Well, too bad, because he's going to die for you to read about it. You know what we should do as an episode sometime? We should talk about all the different egg guns slash eggs as uh, what kind of egg. Hard-boiled, soft-boiled, poached, scrambled. Oh, well, let me tell you um, about Aegon, Rhaegar's son. I'm done now. We can't sit around and fry eggs all day, Eliana. 
we have to uh, make do and whisk ourselves away into a lightning round. And honestly, it's pretty stormy. I don't know if I'd call it a lightning round. We are going to discuss some of Aries's history. Book to book, from A Game of Thrones to A Clash of Kings, Storm of Swords, and up until here in A Feast for Crows with a couple influential chapters, right? So we'll each take a book, we'll jump through it. We're gonna jump through it. So in The World of Ice and Fire, that glorious tome, we learn, in quotes, Ari's always wanted to be a Kingsguard. He's been in the Kingsguard about a decade now. We're in 300 AC or so, uh, modern day in the actual story of A Song of Ice and Fire, and has likely been there since 290 AC Animal Crossing. We've been discussing this offline a little bit on how, I'm guessing he's like 30 to 32 years old, or like maybe like 28 to 30, somewhere in that little golden range, because... He's not going to be 16 or 17, as Eliana had pointed out, uh, because Jamie obviously, was the youngest Kingsguard. There's nothing about Ares being a young Kingsguard, so, I don't know, um, I'd say he's probably, like, 30-ish when we meet him. I agree, that sounds right to me, um, but yeah, it's interesting that we don't really know, we're just kind of given this assumption, and... Whatever, I guess it doesn't matter that much. He's not that important no. to the story because he dies. dies. Motherfucker he fucking dies. needs to know. <laughs> but I th- I should add that to my list of notes to ask George along with um Do the snails glow in the dark? The snails are so much more important than Ares's age. <gasps> you really think so? You really think the snails are more important? I mean, it could only offer us another angle of meta commentary that I'm already going to make about Eris's age later anyways, so it's like, I don't know. What do I need? Confirmation from George to know I'm right? <sighs> what if I needed okay, yeah, that? Right. We God. Need, well, We need to know about the snails. Uh, so, let's jump into Eris in the books before he even gets his own soul point of view chapter. We have A Game of Thrones, where he competes in the Hands Tourney in 297 AC. He's present in the throne room in Eddard 11 when Ned is in charge on the throne. Ares leads Sansa to her room in Sansa 4 in Mager's Holdfast when the Stark Guard is slaughtered and Ned's taken captive. And he's also present in the next Sansa chapter, Sansa 5, during Barristan's dismissal, and Sansa 6, where he follows Joffrey out. In A Clash of Kings, Ares accompanies Sansa in Sansa 1 to the king's named day tourney. He says the comet is heralding Joffrey's reign as the dragon's heir, and we learn that he's courteous and that he, of all of the Kingsguard, beats Sansa the softest. Uh, we also learn that he's quite a gossip. Well, good thing no one's gossiping about you right now, Ares. In Tyrion 5, Tyrion chooses Ares Okart to be Marcella's Kingsguard companion for Dorne. And finally, Tyrion 9, where he stands with Marcella as they go off to Dorne before the riot happens. In A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 1 has Tyrion reading a letter from Ares stating, Marcella's safely in Sunspear and befriending Princess Ariane and Prince Tristane. In Jamie 8, A Storm of Swords, Jamie's sworn brothers leave the chair Ares would normally sit at vacant. And that brings us here, to A Feast for Crows, where once upon a time, Ares' chapter didn't exist and was part of a very expansive prologue. 
that George was writing. Then he scrapped the five-year gap and actually wrote what happened. So, the captain of the guards, Prince Doran, decides they must depart for the Palace of the Sun. As he spent a good amount of time in the Water Gardens, Arya Hota worries about the day. He'll have to kill Ares Oakheart. The Sand Snakes all seek vengeance, so Doran must sub do them until the time is right. I really tried to draw out all my S's there. <laughs> Cersei 3. Cersei recalls the day before and during Marjorie and Tommen's wedding festivities, haunted by the memory of the Woods Witch during the feast, and after Tommen almost chokes, Cersei refuses to dance with anyone. She does stew on Orain Waters' good Valyrian looks. He looks quite like a certain silver prince she once knew. Later, she burns the Hand's Tower with wildfire to conclude the night. And of course, this leads us into the Soiled Night in A Feast for Crows. In August, we will be returning to discuss more of Ares' fate as we examine Ario Hota's point of view chapters, because yes, that is our next POV. Look at that. What a seamless execution from Chloe. Thank you. Segway queen. Not a Segway queen, a Segway Khaleesi. <laughs> She's looking into the light. The One of the lights, and there's another light behind her as she looks up and she's basking. I'm glowing. <laughs> she really is. Uh, I was so proud when I saw when I saw that in our notes. It's like, amazing job, Chloe. That brings us to the part that I wrote. The Soiled Night Overview. Ares cannot decide whether to respond to duty, honor, or nipples. No need to respond, because the nipples sure will. They speak for themselves, apparently. Loudly and proudly, everyone. Loud, hard, sharp. You know that our podcast identifies explicitly. We we are generally explicit. We just put the explicit on there because we cannot be held accountable for when you listen to us. Just use your best judgment always. But if you've read this chapter, which we're hoping that you have, uh, it's going to put a lot of context around it, maybe make it less weird for everyone involved in talking about this chapter. But if you've read this chapter, use your best judgment about where you're listening to this without your earbuds you know? Yep. Yep. Where, where you listen to it, whether uh, it's around other people that you feel very close to or not, you know, how mm. are you as close to them as, uh, are you bosom buddies with them or not? That uh, uh, Are you breaking That's your nails into their back? Telling them yeah. that they are your white knight? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. But what I do know is that it's a cool autumn night in Doran, <laughs> and Ari's Oakheart has pulled his hood up to disguise himself on the streets. Men from outside of Doran are not welcome here. A trader from King's Landing had learned this the hard way recently from the mob. He thinks his only crime is being from King's Landing. It's so hard to take this chapter seriously. I just want to put that out there. <sighs> okay. There's a lot of commentary, especially considering, like, where we leave Ares, the last time we, like, really have a focus on him is Tyrion 9 in A Clash of Kings, which, if you are listening to not a cast, they are doing their live streams and they have just finished up Tyrion 9 in Clash, but 
literally Ares leaves King's Landing, where this whole Lannister police state regime is, okay, pretty prominent, right? And soon Ares is literally thinking, thank God I got out of there. That place sucked hard when I left. Ares, your crime's not being from King's Landing. Your crime is you aid and abet an evil system. When you left King's Landing, a mob rose up in protest of this evil system that you choose to be a part of. Like, that's that's the whole problem. Not not just because you're from King's Landing, man. Like, coming off the tail end of Jamie in A Dance with Dragons, I think the overlap is pretty strong with this whole conflicting history idea. It's the Reach versus the Dornish, which is what's happening in King's Landing with, well, next book, I would imagine, with Cersei and with the Dornish that are on their way to the capital. Uh, but Jamie had just had the Blackwoods versus the Brackens, right? It's the same idea. Same idea. Hundreds of thousands of years of just war back and forth. It feels very fitting. Yeah. Ari's Okart just really wants to feel oppressed. But as you said, like the mob is because he's with the Lannisters and things are obviously very, very tense here right now. And I mean, that's exactly the case, as you said, for Jamie, not just between the Brackens and the Blackwoods. He's feeling it there, too. And he's like, well, gotta go talk to these Tullys anyway. A lot of the way that Ari's feels is built off of a lot of old prejudice because, you know, after all of this, he immediately thinks about how disappointed his father would be to see him in Dornish garb, even though it's actually way more comfortable than his Kingsguard outfit. He thinks about some of those tapestries that were at Old Oak, which depict some of their rich, rich history. And we actually know a lot more of Oakheart history than, I guess, Ari's Oakheart's age, whatever. Um, but also than these specific Oakheart examples. Yeah, there's Lord Egrin, the open-handed, who was seated in splendor on this certain tapestry with the heads of a hundred Dornishmen piled around his feet. So literally within this first paragraph, Ares is like, I don't know why the Dornishmen hate me so much. I can't understand it. And then he goes into this rich history of like, ah, yes, it's a family tradition to kill Dornishmen. We have it on old tapestries from like the golden ages. Like, this is probably Age of Heroes time this tapestry's from. There's no date attached to this story throughout the books, uh, but I would guess it's before Aegon's Conquest. And same with the next story, the Three Leaves Tapestry, which is in the Prince's Pass. It's pierced by spears, and it shows a man named Alistair Oakhart sounding his war horn with his last breath. A lot of people think that this is a reference to the Song of Roland, an epic poem set during the reign of Charlemagne. Roland is the hero of the hmm. song, the nephew, and he leads the rear guard of the French forces, bursts their temples by blowing his oliphant horn, and then he dies from wounds while facing the enemy. I think there's something in that story that, like, could be given to a lot of stuff in A Feast for Crows, right? We It's a horny book, as we've discussed. It's a horny book, and this is a horny chapter. This is a very horny chapter, but I thought that was an interesting catch. And yeah, it, it definitely is. That, of course, isn't all. There's something that's a little closer that we know in history, something with a little more detail available in the books, which is Olivar the Green Oak, a Kingsguard member, dying at the side of the young dragon, Darren I. Uh, Darren I 
If you remember, gained submission from Dornish nobility during his rule, but the small folk resist and rise up against him. Uh, this is really a lot of similarities with where Doran is during this chapter as well. Darren Stewart is Lord Tynal Tyrell, who's supposed to stamp out rebellion but does a shitty job. 50 to 60,000 men on his watch die over the next three years, and he ends up dying in a trap, and the uprising keeps going. This leads Darren to come all the way back to Dorne, riding through the Boneway. Lord Alan Valerian deals with Planky Town and the Green Blood while he is on his way there. Darren meets the Dornish under a peace banner, but he ends up assassinated, and three of his Kingsguard, including Olivar Oakheart, are slain. So, pretty blatant foreshadowing of a dead Oakheart Kingsguard. Right, pretty pretty out there. Uh, rip Olivar, rip Ares, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a that's a good point. A lot of interesting things in the histories. Uh Ares has a lot of history but not a lot of future. Even before Prince Oberyn had been murdered by the crown, Ares felt this is a interesting phrasing here. Uh Ares felt small black Dornish eyes on mm. him regarding him with thinly veiled hostility. He just constantly thinks that the shopkeepers are trying to cheat him and that the taverners are, like, spitting in his drinks. Mm. And I'm like, interesting. Interesting, Ares. It sounds like you're just projecting a lot of your fears and uh, xenophobia onto other people. Um, you know, I, I, I know that Doran confirms, like, that, yeah, people aren't, like, super jazzed that you're here and also a traitor died. But I'm also just like, eh. Yeah, it's unamused. Uh, it, it, I mean, the whole chapter starts off with like, "I'm not racist," but like that's yeah. literally the beginning of this chapter. I'm just saying. He's like my girlfriend's Dornish. <laughs> my girlfriend that I'm not allowed to tell anyone about is Dornish. Why is my girlfriend embarrassed to fuck me? Huh. I mean, and he's like, maybe that's why. I, yeah, I mean, it's definitely part of what gets him so hot about it. But let's I don't know. It. It's like, well, yeah, obviously that and like the fetishization, but also it's like. Why won't my girlfriend tell people we're fucking? There must be something wrong is usually what you should think next, Ares. And then that's when you go, oh, right, I took a solemn vow to not fuck anyone. Also, she's the fucking princess of a fucking nation. Yeah. And mostly mostly the vow. Probably. And also just like, I don't know, she doesn't tell everyone. Like, Arian's not like, big kiss and tell right that's right. why dark star is like a whole thing in her chapter she's like i hope that they can't tell that i slept with both of them um, <laughs> oh they can like even I mean, if they, I think they didn't dark star know can, i mean dark star i don't think knew. aries can yeah i no. think dark star can tell but like and he doesn't care have he's like, like i don't give a shit they know you know what i mean like they know like they they they're probably wrong but they think you fucked them no matter what so I think that flared up in that fight a little bit. Like, Ares was like, she's never seen this man ever, but she's probably fucked him. I must kill him. He is an inadequate mate for her. I must murder. It's kind of how it feels. She doesn't have, like, the best taste in guys, but I know it's not an Aryan chapter, but it is. Um, no, I She doesn't mean, have the best taste is. in guys and personality, but she's got good taste physically is what it sounds like. Yeah, no, because he's a hot, dumb jock. I mean, I get it. Jocks I mean, have their place. Both of them are. Yeah. So, so the streets have been super quiet since the Sand Snakes were imprisoned in a tower. 
a la Maiden Vault, but Ares was not stupid enough to wear his white cloak in the Shadow City. He feels naked without one of his three different fashion cloaks that he brought. Two wool, one silk. Uh, but he'd rather be naked than dead. He thinks, I am a Kingsguard still, even uncloaked. She must respect that. I must make her understand. He should never have let himself be drawn into this, but the singer said love can make a fool of any man. Ah, Ares Oakheart. Flesh and blood, like any man, right? And yeah. speaking of men, we spent a very long time talking about Jamie Lannister in A Song of Ice and Fire very recently, for like weeks, months at a time. And it reminds me of Jamie too in A Storm of Swords, when he's thinking in his conversation, you would not like the truth. He had joined the Kingsguard for love, of course. It's very romantic. It's very much like the songs. It reminds me of Rhaegar and Lyanna in a roundabout way, perhaps because of the singers saying love can make a fool of any man. Uh, and Ares kind of leads us back to that idea from Duncan Egg, right? With John Quill and Florian in the play. Ares is a knight. Maybe not true nor perfect, but he's a knight. He took the vows and he's a fool. Too. Like, that's very blatant, as we know, and as we keep discussing, he's a major fool. You have Jean Quill saying, You are no knight, I know you, you're Florian the fool. And he says, I am, my lady, as great a fool as ever lived, and as great a knight as well. A fool and a knight? I've never heard of such a thing. Sweet lady, all men are fools, and all men are knights where women are concerned. I don't know, Arius is just a total stupid jock who doesn't understand what he symbolizes. Like, he doesn't realize the hurt he does, and he doesn't do it deliberately, but, like, his existence is, like, bearing. You know what I mean? Like, there are some people whose existence costs a toll every day for existing. Whoever pays this toll, it could be other people, you know? It could be the Earth, could be whoever, but his existence costs a toll and someone has to pay it every day. Today it's Ariane with her vagina, but... Um, and, and I think it's interesting that you say that because, like, we're going to talk a lot about Jamie, of course. <laughs> Surprise, and Jamie never games. ended. Surprise! Uh, yeah, this is just Jamie Redux, but, um, yeah, and, and you know, you're saying that Ares doesn't realize what he symbolizes and the harm that he causes, and I do think it's significant that, at the very least, you know, Jamie is very cognizant of that. He knows what it means, what 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 being a Lannister, like the weight that it carries and what it symbolizes for people, and he's mindful that, like, I mean, people recognize that and and understands that it comes with just as much of a price as it does offer him power and privilege, and Ares doesn't quite understand that as you said and not only does he not understand like the harm that he's causing without any intention i mean that's basically the rest of his existence from here mm -hmm. on out yeah yeah absolutely consequences the streets are much more alive at night with music drifting out of windows and drums beating to a spear dance the night feels like it has a pulse, and uh, a pillow girl calls down from the balcony to Ari's, who's oiled and in jewels because, you know, this is an MTV video version of Dorn. <laughs> Look, some of this chapter, like, I have 33.33333% feelings on three things in this chapter. 
Some of this is absolutely through a lens that is Aries Oakheart's lens, right? Like, George is absolutely like, this is how a dude like Aries Oakheart thinks. This is what he sees. This is his whole surroundings. That's 33.3% of this chapter. Another 33.3% of this chapter is meta-commentary on the type of man that Aries Oakheart is, the dumb, stupid jock man that he is. And then another 33.3 whatever percent, I think is George, and maybe that's just the sex scene, but like, you also have to say that part of it's just the author. Like, yes, it's meta-commentary, do with this comment what you will, it's, it's something. It's that, and like that Doran reinforces some of these ideas, like, oh yes, we're just very yeah. hot-blooded and things like that, and I'm like- Spicy! Really, bro? Like, really? You're gonna do that? It's a bit fetishy. It's a yeah. There's a lot of like how George is sort of you know exotifying the Dornish and uh, relying on what I feel. You know, even though uh, Dorn isn't in Essos or doesn't take place in somewhere that is a uh, east of Westeros, uh, in othering them relies on what I feel are. Yeah. Uh, orientalist tropes from uh, the way that it's like, wow, and here people are like so exotic and sexy and, and uh, you know, the hot-blooded and, and the desert yeah. makes them like this. And it's like, okay. Yep. Like, you sure did go there, George. So he looks up at the girl, weak-willed like he is. But Ares forces himself to move on, and he's like, men are weak, and I'm like, same. He thinks about Baylor the Blessed, actually, who we've talked about a bit before, who fasted to rid himself of lusts, and he wonders if he should do the same. If he should do the same. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting framing for some of the things that get discussed in this chapter, and I noted it because of how much Ares thinks of Baylor, or at the very least, I mean, just this line, like... Our Patreon episode about the Maiden Vault, I think, really made clear uh, quite a few things to this about what was going on with Baylor the Blessed um, to me as as we were working through it. And, you know, you see some of those parallels with the Sand Snakes being imprisoned just a little bit before this chapter and how, you know, I feel that Baylor says he imprisoned his sisters to curb his lust, but I think that there was quite a bit more going on there that isn't chronicled, especially when you look at how Succession would have fallen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Succession plays a really prominent role in this, and uh, Doran securing the sand... I mean, there's a lot in this chapter as well that I think we're going to speak about with Doran. Um, I think he portrays himself as weaker in this chapter than what he actually is. I think that Doran putting the Sand Snakes in the tower and locking them up was him literally like taking a minute to be like, let me get this all on lockdown. Let me make sure shit's the way I need it to be before I try to play my cards. Like, obviously, everyone was like, shit or get off the pot, Doran. And he's like, fine, I'll shit. But first, I'm going to lock these bitches up so that I don't have a huge problem before I shit everywhere. And then he shits everywhere, and he's like, you get some shit, you go to King's Landing, you get some shit, you go to King's Landing. I mean, remember how we just talked about how there's a Riverlands conspiracy theory, and it's probably more likely that's real than the Northern conspiracy theory? 
people really poop on the idea of Doran like being a master planner, and I think that he has lots of plans, and he's had lots of plans for a very long amount of time, and now his time's running out because he's been biding his time, and now he's screwed and has to use whatever form of a plan he can use before he burns out. And I think it's made apparent here. I think there's a lot of uh, truth to... There's a lot of things that Arianne misunderstands about her father, mm-hmm. but I think there's quite some merit to what she says of like, I don't know, he does a lot of things and he thinks a lot, and if he says he's going to do something, it's going to take like four times the amount of time. And I think there's truth to that, and Doran, if you think about it, didn't quite get the joy of vengeance that he wanted from Tywin, right? Like, mm-hmm. he was like... I got all these, like, fantastic master plans of, like, how it's going to go. It's going to be perfect. And it's, like, at some point, sometimes you just got to make a decision and you just got to commit and do to do it. And we'll talk about that a bit more uh, with some of the metaphors that come through in this chapter. But first, a man is grilling a snake over a brazier, and its spices bring food tears to Ares's eyes. There's a quote of, The best snake sauce had a drop of venom in it, he had heard, along with mustard seeds and dragon peppers. Well, hang out, Ares, or don't, because you die. But there are some dragon peppers to come, let me tell you. I feel like there's a lot with poisons and Dorn being pushed in our faces in A Feast for Crows, and I think it's going to connect directly to Tommen in The Winds of Winter. I'm guessing Tommen's going to be poisoned on his way out because, you know, crown him is to kill him. But directly before this in Cersei 3, we have this passage that kind of reminds me a bit of Aerys's position right now. Nor did Jamie help her mood when he turned up in white and still unshaven to tell her how he meant to keep her son from being poisoned. I'll have men in the kitchens watching as each dish is prepared, he said. Sir Adam's gold cloaks will escort the servants as they bring food to table to make certain no tampering takes place along the way. Sir Boros will be tasting every course before Tommen puts a bite into his mouth. If that should fail, Maester Balabar will be seated in the back of the hall with purges and antidotes for twenty common poisons on his person. Tommen will be safe, I promise you. You know... Tommen was dead the second Tyrion didn't succeed in keeping him out of the city too, right? Let alone the crowning. And as we jet through some of this plot, I think the Dornish history is going to relate a lot to Cersei at Tommen's wedding. With the roses alone, I mean, that's super significant as the Dornish team is eventually coming to the capital. The Oakarts played a really prominent role in both Targaryen and Blackfire history, and Oakheart tried to court Princess Rhaenyra before the Dance of the Dragons broke out, and they initially supported her during the dance, even without the marriage, but they ended up having to submit to Darren the Daring and the High Towers during the war. We'll probably chat about Kristen Cole later in the chapter and the dance as well then, when Ares brings it back up, but looking back to the Sworn Sword, the Oakharts played both sides in the Blackfire Rebellion, and I think we might see that coming up split between the reach in general yeah there's some interesting things about the oakarts going on and as you said the later dornish plot moving forward for now though aries who probably doesn't eat salt on his food tried some of the dornish food to please marcella uh, who loved her dornish food much like her prince her tristane 
But Ari's doesn't love it. And I, I don't know. It's just... Marcella's so wonderful and good. She's like, yeah, I'll try other food. I'll get to know other people. This is fine. This is fun. And that's why Ari's was able to just leave them. Playing Savas at a magnificent table of jade and carnelian and lapis lazuli. And then, you know... Marcella's good at Savas, and she's, like, into it, and Savas came to Planky Town. I just like saying Planky Town every time, and I want to remind everyone about that. <laughs> I love that very much. But it's fun to say, Planky Town. It's like a, I don't like know, a little video RPG game place. Town. Yeah. Yes, exactly, it really does. You show up, get a little bit of backstory, you're gonna gas up, spend some money on, you know, some potions and shit, and get out of there. Couple cups yeah, scenes I don't head. know that that's quite how it went for a lot of these people, but yeah. I think that's what Quentin thought his life was going to be like after Planky Town. But anyways, uh, it came to Planky Town on a trading galley from Volantis, and then the orphans spread it up and down the green blood. We have this line of, Ari's hated the game, but Dornish Court was mad for it. Lol, that's meta, because, you know, Dornish Court is mad for Savas, just like Dornish Court is mad for Vengeance. Which, you know, takes place in Savas in a real court with physical players, right? And I think it's interesting, this isn't the chapter where we get all of the information, but we do get a little bit of information on Savas. We can do some connecting here. Savas has ten pieces with their own attributes and powers. The board changes depending on how the players change their squares. So in Tyrion, in A Dance with Dragons, I want to say it's, what, Tyrion 6, uh, we learn of the pieces, which are... Rabble, representing small folk or the pawn, spearmen, crossbowmen, light horse, heavy horse, trebuchet, you know, a type of catapult, and then catapult, another regular type of catapult, dragon, elephant, and king. So yes, we learn those in Tyrion's chapters where the game is further illustrated and the metaphor, of course, plays on, but here the metaphor is, of course, light and frothy before Ares meets his demise. Marcella, we learn, who's not quite 10 yet, she's won more times than not when playing against 13-year-old Tristane, and we get this really sweet passage, in my opinion, it's sweet. The two children could not have looked more different. Him with his olive skin and straight black hair, her pale as milk with a mop of golden curls, light and dark like Queen Cersei and King Robert. He prayed Marcella would find more joy in her Dornish boy than her mother had found with her Stormlord. I just realized, is this supposed to look like Daenerys and Jon? Huh. I didn't think about that, but that, I could see that. He wears a lot of black, he's goth. Um, I thought it was also interesting that Ari's, uh points out here that he had noticed that Cersei and Robert had a poor relationship, but I'm also like, I mean, I guess Ari sounds like he was the court gossip, so... Maybe it's not surprising. Maybe. Marcella's... I mean, he's mm -hmm. also been around that long, is the other thing I was thinking. Yeah. Is like, he was there to see the marriage go south, right? Like, 290 AC, if he became Kingsguard then, he joined up, like, a little over half a decade after Robert had taken the throne, and the Acedia was starting to set in, and, I mean, Ares would have seen it. He would have shown up and been like, wow... This isn't really charming. I mean, the songs are bullshit, is what he would have learned, just like Jamie and Sansa. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it took, what, some of the Stark kids, like, a second to see, like, 
wow, this marriage is bad. Yeah. And like you said, Ari's was there for 10 years and it was probably like, okay. He's like, finally right now. He's like, huh, maybe that's not great. Hmm. He's like, maybe it's cool that I uh, never have to deal with this for himself. And then here we are now, you know, with in Dorne, where Marcella's chambers had limited access in the Tower of the Sun. So ideally, you know, she should theoretically be safe while Ari slips out. It is, after all, guarded by loyal Lannister men. Her maids and Septa Eglantine attend her as well, and Prince Tristane's sworn shield, Gascoigne of the Greenblood. And they're going to guard them as well. I love that there are loyal Lannister men guarding her. It kind of feels contradictory. Like, they're they're randos, they have no names, so that implies to me that they're lower-scale Lannister lackeys, and they're not significant enough to be a real character, which implies that these guys are probably only royal to their pocketbooks. So, I don't know, leaving some randos in charge of Marcella? Hmm. They're red shirts. Yeah. They're gonna be red shirts, let me just tell you. Woo! (laughs) Crimson shirts. Yeah. Prince Doran had also promised Marcella safety. Now and until the move to Sunspear, Ares had spoken with him just the other eve, and he had apologized for being unable to see him or the princess until now. He gave him his wishes in hopes that Arianne had treated him well in Dorne. <laughs> like blowjobs. Yeah, he's like, mm, I wish that Ares could have seen more of Doran's beauty. Oh, he saw enough Pause. of it, Doran. Don't you worry. <laughs> he saw all of the creases and folds. The moist caverns yes. of Dorne. He was there. The valleys. The valleys, the, the ridges. The folds. I already said folds. I digress. <laughs> he also said that, you know, unfortunately he and Marcella are very much unsafe in the streets, confirming Ares's suspicions. He tells them that the Sand Snakes are not alone, uh, that the small folk also want vengeance, and that half the lords in Dorne support them and have the same thoughts. Again, this does remind me of the young dragon and how uh, he thought he had the nobility at least signed on, but then the small folk rose up and the nobility were housing some of the small folk, apparently, who wanted to do that rising up. Just saying, rebellions everywhere. Ares dared to ask Doran, very bold, what he thought. He's like, bullshit aside, Doran, Prince Doran, tell me what's up. What's the real deal? So we get this passage between Doran and Ares. My mother taught me long ago that only madmen fight wars they cannot win. Yet this peace is fragile, as fragile as your princess. Only a beast would harm a little girl. My sister Elia had a little girl as well. Her name was Rhaenys. She was a princess, too. The prince sighed. Those who would plunge a knife into Princess Myrcella do not bear her any malice, no more than Sir Amory Lorch did when he killed Rhaenys, if indeed he did. They seek only to force my hand, for if Myrcella should be slain in Dorne whilst under my protection, who would believe my denials? No one shall ever harm Marcella whilst I live. There's a lot of double talk happening here, right? Doran does something that I think is ignored by a lot of the populace. 
Oberyn, when he shows up at King's Landing and he's chatting with Tyrion, he's straight up like, oh, it is a threat that I'm here. He's like, it is for real. Like, I am here to pass some judgment. And if you bitches don't want to move on my sister's killers, that's all right. I'll force your hand. But Doran's playing the same game, just quieter, right? He says, my sister Elia had a little girl. She died in the city you hail from, my friend. Marcella? No, no, no one bears her malice. You know, no more than Amory Lorch, the guy who supposedly killed my sister. You know, ever heard of him? He name drops. He's like, oh, people seek to force my hand, which is why right now, later on, when Doran's revealed his hand, he's sending Marcella home with sand snakes because that's insurance so that they know. I only meant to send Marcella back to King's Landing. Like, I had nothing to do with her possibly dying at King's Landing under the hands of things going on. By sending her back, it's seen as gracious, right? It's a very big political move. If Marcella dies while Doran's there, or not there, sorry, if Marcella dies while Doran's not there, he's absolved of any of that. And I think his master planning goal is to defeat the Lannisters, as we learn when he sends everyone off. He's been biding his time, except now he's going from like zero to 100. And the other players have their own minds, just like Littlefinger mentioned about Cersei in that Sansa chapter, right? But it applies here with the snakes in Ariane. I think they're really going to turn the tables in King's Landing. Yeah, I mean, I do think that Doran is conflicted in that I do think he does hope that no harm befalls Marcella, right? That's why we see all those scenes of him watching the children playing, and I think it's a big part of why it has taken him so long to move the Martells into action or any of Doran when it comes to all these plans, because he knows that if things go awry... These innocents and children will pay the price, yeah. as his nephew and niece did. I also think it's significant that he calls out that you know if Marcella is slain and Dorn under his protection, even if it has nothing to do with him, like who's going to believe him if he denies it? And I think that sounds quite like what's going to happen to Daenerys with Quentin, mm-hmm. right? Like. Daenerys wasn't there. It, like it's literally not her fault. Who's gonna believe that Quentin her, died? Not Dorne. Who's going to believe her? Especially when Quentin's friends are like, Quentin died because Daenerys wouldn't like him. As though she like, yeah, that man hating bitch. <laughs> yeah, she's a man hating bitch. Was all like, yeah, yeah, pretty much. And so I think that that. The way what Doran is saying here is not just predictive of other people's behavior, but how he's going to feel and how he's going to blame Danny for the death of his son, even though, again, Danny was like literally dealing with different problems and Quentin just showed up out of nowhere. And he's like also information wise, like down the pipeline, he's not going to get information in a timely manner. I mean, there's going to be the effects yeah. of travel via Raven. As far as messages, like, it's not just, like, opening up your phone and hitting Instagram or Facebook Messenger. Like, this is a bird gets there asking for info. And as we know where the armies are positioned and what Ariane's ask is in the Winds of Winter, that Ariane is literally, like, she's about to tip the scales any moment and say, I choose dragons, baby. I think that's something that's, like, so significant that, like, 
Doran can only go off of what he knows, and if he doesn't have the the honest information at the right time, doesn't look great, does it? Yeah, Aryan's out here thinking, I'm choosing dragon, but she's really choosing dragon as a matter of her death. Um, (sighs) Burn, baby, burn. I also find it significant and intentional here that uh, within this exchange, Ari says only a beast would harm a little girl. And then there's no narration right after that. It's just straight in between a lot of this dialogue. So um, it's not shown here in this moment, but later on, Ari does ruminate on how he was quote quote forced to hit Sansa. And he does feel guilt about it, but we don't see him thinking about it here at this moment that he himself is a beast for harming a little girl. Ooh, that's a really good one to think about. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, he seems like a dumb, affectionate, lovable jock, right? Where you're just like, oh, Ares, he didn't mean any harm. But as we said, like, his very existence implicates harm. Yeah, he didn't mean harm, and yeah, he didn't hit that hard, as we know. He he hit the least of the other grown men with chainmail hands that smacked Sansa Stark repeatedly for Joffrey's enjoyment. It's nice that he didn't hit as hard, but he's still a grown man hitting a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, it's not good. It's, in fact, very bad and goes to show, you know, that idea of, like, none of them being true knights, and it's, like kind of fucked up because Sansa's like, well, I appreciate that I like Ari's the most, I guess, as much as I can like any of these men who hit me. But it's still like, dude. Doran admits uh, that locking up the Sand Snakes kind of bit him in the ass and that everyone is whispering in corners and sharpening their knives. Ari's then thinks that, you know, the prince looks terrified Noting that his hands are shaking, Doran dismisses him, telling him that sometimes Sunspear wearies him as he is frail, and he advises Ares that he plans to take Marcella, Ares, and her company to the water gardens after all this, because it's a peaceful garden. Also, it's symbolic. Prince Marin raised them for his princess, Daenerys, that he married. This is great foreshadowing of Doran's plans for Quentin and Danny that kind of break out, right? Especially with Ariane later here, kind of revealing all to Ares and being like, oh, my father doesn't even want me to have any control. Life sucks. I'm a rebel. Uh, but something something is really, like, off about how pure and great these water gardens are, right? Because every time we see them up close, like in Captain of the Guards, they are covered in this overripe blood orange that is just, like, dropping to the ground, spoiled, rotten, juice everywhere, just plop, plop, plop. Fruit going bad, you know, innocence turned to to dust. That's a very common theme that we see in this story. And I don't know, Doran acts like the water will heal all of time's wounds, and he's going to, like, make some tea and meditate. He's going to pull some Uncle Iroh shit, right? Like, take it back to the spirit world. And so a while back, there was this drama Eliana, I think you know this drama. I'll explain it for our listeners. I actually didn't. You didn't? Oh, okay. This is fun. So a while back, there was a comment posted on George's Not a Blog. It was after season eight happened, the tragedy that broke the entire world. uh, And somebody basically commented saying, like, I need answers, bitching about the show. And they said... You know, in the comment, they implied that it's canonical that Danny will burn the water gardens, kind of just like 
in passing, they acted like it. They, what they said, the literal phrasing was, I never understood why Danny becomes John's Nisa if Arya is Aemon's Nerys. Okay. Perhaps he wanted to what? show- What? Yeah, just listen. Perhaps he wanted to show Danny becomes Red Riding Hood for the Big Bad Wolf from all sides, political and personal. In that way, it makes sense, but the burning of children at the Water Gardens never made sense to me, irrespective of how much Doran Oberyn have hurt her family, Rhaegar and Viserys, in the past. So this user treated it like it was canon. A bunch of people responded shaming that user. George eventually responded saying, I quote, the Water Gardens bit, uh, no. So a lot of people took that and ran with it, and they were like, Danny would never burn the Water Gardens. I don't know if I feel that way. I don't know if reading George's comments for snippets of info and signs is the way to actually enjoy this piece of art overall, so I'm not going to pursue that. I think it's probably still on the table as something that could happen, but I just feel like the water gardens are like going to have some dramatic bullshit happen. That rotting fruit, there has to be a showdown. It's like symbolism and metaphors and themes and resonance. There's no way that they survive unblooded. Something has to go down here. Yeah, there's a, I don't know what it is, but there's something significant that will happen at the Water Gardens. And when I think about it, you know, as you said, it's that symbol of innocence and... Innocence lost. Yeah, innocence lost. It's a consequence of Doran and Arianne's actions, mm-hmm. whatever ends up happening. All those happy kids playing games in the water. Mm-mm. Yeah, and and... There's something else, like, another uh, facet to it that kind of makes me think of, you know, George really into history and all these things that he can never see and revisit because they're literally gone um, and their destruction. And I think that one of the things that's going to be lost, that's going to be very painful for the world, as like a wonder of it, is the library at the Citadel at Old Town. And the water gardens feel very much inspired and, and have a sort of vibe that feels similar to the hanging gardens at Babylon. Mm. And that's gone, <laughs> as we all know, in real life. So I, there's something that about that I feel like George is trying to channel that sense of loss there, too. I don't know what it is, but... Yeah, I think so. There's got to be something. I don't know. I, I'm just waiting to find out. Like, I just feel like something has to go down there. And... There is something that's hanging over this chapter as Ariane is like every five seconds. Oh, my brother and my dad, they're just plotting against me and they're just locking me away as a woman, which as we already know, who have read the books, unfortunately, Ariane has not. She should have, as we've discussed, read the books. But as we go through it, we're just like, oh, Ariane, no, there's a different thing going on. And then, and they're all gonna die. Yeah, I do do wonder if Ariane survives just... I hope the best for her. I just am very realistic that they're not gonna, any of them, they're all gonna die. For me, it's that Arianne surviving and seeing the consequences of her choices of dragon want and her ambition. Yeah. Uh, feels almost more uh, consequential, more heavy than if she died. Having to live with uh, all of that loss. That's me personally. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, for me, it's like there's going to have to be consequences for 
Marcella's death because you know she's gonna die. Uh, they're all gonna die. They're all gonna die. God, but I don't know. Consequences will never be the same. Yeah, never again. So Doran advises Ares because Ares's biggest worry is Marcella. Doran advises him that she won't be lonely. She'll grow safely with other kids her age. But at the same time, Doran urged him, don't don't write home. Don't write King's Landing. Don't write the throne about this because it could be intercepted. Ha <laughs> ha. And Ares is like, all right. He has no choice but to agree. Yeah, he doesn't think too hard about it. <laughs> but I actually do think that Marcella growing up at the Water Gardens had that actually happened for her. Could have been pretty advantageous, especially compared to the childhood that Tywin gave his children. Because not only then does Marcella learn to socialize with others like in a healthy way, the way, you know, the her parents <laughs> never learned to do. Right. Because they're both... Tywin's uh, kids, um, but you know, also grows up meeting other children of different backgrounds because there are children of different classes there. But you, you know, for those that are her age who are also noble and highborn, I think that would also likely include some people from the free cities. And if you know, if any, if Arianne's childhood is anything to go by, and you know, between the free cities and some of the other Dornish houses, like I think that this would have been really crucial and and advantageous for her in forming alliances, very much like the cohorts and that group that Marjorie has, that's held together by a lot of um them spending time together and those friendships, and that ends up having a lot of like political strength for them, especially in the Reach. And if Cersei is truly like that concerned about the Tyrells, I think that. A group or a cohort for Marcello within the Dornish faction could have actually been a very strong counter to that. I mean, we see Ariane, who has forged these relationships over time and been charismatic and been able to nurture them and grow them along. Like, she has her cousins, she has the Fowler twins, she has all these girls that she knows. She herself, uh, she has... Not just them, but Girin. She has her own little ragtag crew, right? She has this crew that is able to help her pull off covert ops when she calls him up and says, look, I need my favor. Here's my big Khalid, my big princess of Dorn favor. I need to pull a mission off. And she has enough people that are loyal to her that she can do that. That is what Marjorie has. That's the advantage Marjorie has at Court and King's Landing. And that's the advantage Marcella needs to survive anything. Yeah, but Tywin didn't teach his kids about those kinds of alliances. No, he taught them it's fear. It's all fear. Well, back in real time, Ares is walking into an alley that becomes a moonlit courtyard. We're about to get to our femme fatale that we keep talking about. He's following directions from a she. She wrote things on this page. Past the candlemaker's shop, a gate, short flight of steps, an unmarked door... He thinks about knocking, but instead pushes into a low-ceilinged, dim room. Candles lit in the thick walls, mirish carpets on the floor, tapestries upon a wall, a bed. He calls out for his lady, and she steps out. Here, she stepped out from the shadows behind the door. So there's a lot of talk of this shadow city this idea of shadows in general throughout this chapter, and that really stood out to me, especially in terms of what's going on here with Ares's interiority. Uh, the Shadow City gets mentioned a lot about how it's like this other side of Dorne. And 
there's this concept in Jungian psychology, which, you know, you can give or take as <laughs> uh, valid, but I, I think it's an interesting idea when it comes to stories, as same as Freud is. And I think, I don't know if it's here or somewhere else where I've spoken about the idea of Freud and the ego and the id as it manifests in Tyrion's storyline, especially with uh, Tywin manifesting as that superego within his story, and then as Tyrion gives into more of his desires. And I think you're seeing something similar here with Ares. Uh, as we talk about the Shadow City, Ares is starting to learn more about his shadow, which in Jungian psychology is a lot of that, um, the unconscious, those darker desires, there's more primal desires that people like don't really notice that they have uh, bubbling underneath the surface versus the persona, which is the other side of it. It's the conscious element, the part that um, people tend to see of you or that you present of yourself and that you know or want people to see. And the shadow is very much characterized by feelings of, you know, again, desire, violence, all these urges, but there's a lot of guilt especially because, again, it's that unconscious. It's those things that you tend to deny yourself. And we're seeing Ares do that, right? He has his own shadow city going on as he goes through Dorne's shadow city, but himself meeting with Ariane constantly. And he's unable to integrate the persona and the shadow, which is a thing that you're supposed to be able to do to be healthy, uh, where the persona integrates the shadow versus the other way around. And because he can't deal with it, he ends up dying. He ends up being like, I cannot deal with uh, these desires in the shadow. He can't accept it, even though Arianne's like, yo, this is normal. A lot of people want to have sex, and that's fine. You're in a very strange, like, job position. And she's like, all these other people did it. Like, you need to chill out. But Ari's, rather than dealing with it, is letting that guilt consume him and that's the shadow impulse that he gives into and eventually is like kill me now Ario Hota and I I just think that boy wanted to die yeah I, I think that is I mean and we've talked about it before that we think he wanted to die because he did he was that conflicted right like because it is sad at the end he charges and as we'll talk about Arianne's reaction later I mean he charges straight into it. He wants to go. He yeah. chooses that glory of dying in that manner. As opposed to dealing with his uh, dick. Yes. Yes. To Ares's dick may. I mean, his dismay. Uh, and things are going to get a little NSFW, like we said earlier. So put those earbuds in. And an editor's note from me. I'm sorry for how most of this is described, but it's really hard to take this seriously without a lot of eye rolls in some spots, so everybody buckle up. Get ready. Wrap up. Oh, someone made a great joke. Uh, I want to call them out. Uh, I need to find their name. Uh, a reply to our Girls Gone Canon account. I'm going to take this quick aside where we were talking about how we were wrapping up Jamie, and they said wrapping up Jamie would have saved a lot of problems in the story. You know, and the, the joke was about condoms, in case you don't get it. It took me a second. I, like, stared at it, turned my phone off, and then had a delayed, like, really big laugh. And my partner was like, what's going on? And I'm like, it was funny. <laughs> I love it. No, that's beautiful. It really is. Uh, thank you to that person. 
Uh, I'm sorry. Fine, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. <laughs> anyway. So, so, adorned in nothing but a golden and copper-scaled snake on her arm, Princess Ariane Martel comes out, the royalty, because Ares was planning on dumping her today, you see, because he wanted to choose honor and his vows, but he loses his speech and he drinks in her good qualities, the hollow of her throat, her round, ripe melon breasts with huge, dark nipples, the lush curves, and then suddenly they're ripping off his clothing and they're starting to fuck. Very abrupt, I know. I love that he came out here to dump her. Like, what did he think was going to happen? Ari's give her a ghosting. He could have ghosted. Jamie Lannister did it. Worked out great for him. It was thus far successful in not having sex. And I think that... Ari Zokard wanted to get fucked, just like he wanted to die. I think we might have discussed this element before in Arian's chapters, but it is really interesting, again, that in the narration of this chapter, Arian isn't named when she first appears, right? It's kind of insinuated at first, with him calling out my lady, because that is very much a formal title and meaningful in the story, especially because you have characters like Gilly being like, don't call me a lady, I'm not a lady. And... The narration doesn't name her or call her by name until much further into this conversation uh, where she puts her arms around him later on. And it's uh, very much a lot of what George does in miniature throughout this whole story uh, when it comes to reveals. Uh, But it all happens within this one chapter. Yeah, and it keeps going, right? Like, Ares (laughs) is all about Ariane's thick pubes that happen to smell like orchids by the way. And she's like, touch me! And you know what happens next. There's this line, straight up a Cersei line. More! Oh, more! Yes, sweet! My knight, my knight, my sweet white knight! Yes, you! You! I want you! Some Cersei shit. Uh, it, it, It reminds me a little bit now that, so of course, this is early A Feast for Crows, but Later in The Winds of Winter, in Ariane's chapters, her sample chapters, we get the lie, Young girls dreamed of dashing knights with wicked smiles, not solemn boys who always did their duty. And I think that dictates a lot of this, right? Dictates? Dictates, yes. Yeah, it, it definitely does. I mean, it, half of what Ariane's getting off of on here is not just, I guess, Ari's body and not it it's not just her like stringing him along for Marcella. She's getting off on getting this solemn boy who always did his duty did not to become a dashing knight with a wicked smile. Yeah, she likes uh, she likes the boy to go bad. She likes to know like, oh, I did this. She does, which good for her. Yeah, to be honest. But like, you play with fire. True, 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 true. And that's something Ari's will learn. Uh, at first, he feels immense ecstasy as he comes, but then immediately then feels immense guilt as well. And there's a moment where right after orgasm, Ari's thinks that he's like died and that he would be happy to die then, right before the guilt sinks in. And it very much plays in with that Shakespearean idea of like the little death 
as the orgasm was sometimes thought of. Yes, la petite so, mort. <laughs> right before the big one. <laughs> he stares up at the ceiling. A crack splits it from one wall to another, meta. And then he notices yes. something else that he's never noticed before. A tapestry on the wall of Nemeria and her 10,000 ships. Of course, he was distracted by Ariane because you want the honor, but you need the good or bad pussy, whatever you want to call it. Ares only sees Ariane. Yeah, and I think this for sure means something. Uh, I think it's probably, it makes me think of what we'll probably see with Aegon. I'm only seeing Ariane and being distracted. You know, not seeing the dragon in his window. Uh, another thing that Ares is like, I wouldn't have even noticed that. As Daenerys makes her way to Westeros with ships and dragons, so. For sure, something. I mean, I was sharing with you how it reminds me of Prince Wu from Legend of Korra today, which uh, patrons in that chestnut and up. Stay tuned. But um, I digress. It, it feels like I just almost can feel his coronation. You know, like I just know Aegon's coronation. I know how it goes already. I know this like I know it by heart. I already know what's going to happen. That cocky little shit. Like he's going to become cocky and it's mostly Tyrion's fault. And then Danny's going to humble him just like her dragons in the past have humbled other people. Yeah, but not until much, much later. Yeah. First, Arianne is trying to soften all of these blows here in A Feast for Crows, not the blows that you think they should be, uh, by offering wine to Ares, apologizing for making him bleed because, you know, Dornish women are into that freaky shit, but he doesn't want her to try to heal his scratches or give him wine. He's like, I just want to stop wanting to fuck you, uh, and I don't want to forsake my vows anymore, but it's hard. Not his dick, that was hard earlier, just everything else. Ariane- And then again later. (laughs) Ariane begs Ares to stay and says he must be leaving her for some other woman, and she'd fight the other woman, unless it was a sand snake, because she loves her cousins. She'd rather share, then- Ares is like, no, it's duty, not snaky. And Ariane's like, that poxy bitch? I know her. Dry as dust between the legs and her kisses leave you bleeding. Let duty sleep alone for once and sleep with me tonight. Yeah. Kind of cringy. Um, yeah. There's a lot to say here, especially, though, about John and Jamie, I think, with duty and, you know... We could say it now, but I I am going to save some of it because we're going to revisit it with Arya Hota's chapters. Absolutely. Coming up soon. Absolutely. Ariane offers to roleplay all innocent-like because that's what Ares seems to be into with his other princess. Damn. And Ares is like... <laughs> he's like, no, that's not my king. Yeah, he's like, this is very inappropriate and I'm very ashamed. Internally, he's like... You can't be mad at Ariane. She's Dornish. She's wild and wanton because of the heat and spice out here. She can't help her ways because that's how it works. You guys, I wanna. I I just want to offer this warning when it comes to spicy things and sex. Don't mix them. Don't mix them. You gotta be careful. You when it comes to you know like wash your mouth out, wash your hands, wash your dick. 
the things linger. Be careful where you touch anything that might have been holding spicy things or might have been tasting jalapenos. They will be all up in yos. Put them in other places. Do not let them get all up Hmm? in yos. It will not feel good. Or not all up in yos, or like around it, depending on what what parts you've got. It's not fun for parties involved. So. That's the PSA for this episode. (laughs) Ari's defense himself says that he loves Princess Marcella like a daughter he could never have. He speaks on the plan to go to the water gardens, but Ariane has her doubts. Doran doesn't tend to move swiftly. There's something here that I didn't like really dig into or think about too much of Ari's being like Marcella's like the daughter he could never have, yet for Jamie, you know, his duties also with Marcella's literally. Daughter he can never have. Yeah, but also kind of does have. So, anyways. Ariyan says he'll be lonely there, though. And where is the brave young gallant who said he wished to spend the rest of his life in my arms? I was drunk when I said that. You'd had three cups of watered wine. I was drunk on you. It had been ten years since. Ah... Uh, Ares goes on to talk about how he's been horny for a decade. <laughs> and then, of course, Ariane immediately starts to play with her boob, which we get the classic line, Was there ever a woman with nipples so large or so responsive? Iconic. But Ares is a strong motherfucker. His hands are shaking. He's like, I gotta get dressed. And he gets up and starts pulling clothes on. I did want to call out this image of his hands shaking. It stands out to me because... Earlier in this chapter, Ari's actually did note when Doran's hands shook when speaking of the sand snakes, and Ari's thinks that Doran is also afraid, and so you see that running through here with now Ari's is afraid. Being afraid. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that Doran was afraid, though, personally. I think Doran felt pretty good. I think he was like... I got this. I got it under control. I think he was shaking so he could be like, yeah, I'm a frail old man. Yeah, that's true. Maybe. That's what I think. I really do think, like, I'm not trying to join the Master Dornish plan thing, but, like, I do think that he played that shit like a fiddle. He was just like, I'm weak. I would never plan things because, I mean, he doesn't know that Ares is stupid as fuck. That's true. Yeah. But Doran... Does a lot of planning, not a lot of executing. There's mm-hmm. a step. There's a step in between those project managing. <laughs> Arian comments that she prefers Ari's unclothed. A bed. They can be their truest selves together, but their clothing makes them different people. There's this line from Arian. I would sooner be flesh and blood than silks and jewels, and you, you are not your white cloak, sir. A lot of strong themes as Cersei and Cersei 2 and Cersei 3 here coincide, like Cersei noting Jamie's white garb at the funeral, Cersei coming to Jamie and enticing him with her body, begging him to stay and protect her from the great harm coming to her. Ariane and Cersei both very strongly play that femme fatale role in Aeswaf, it definitely shows here, and Cersei tells Jamie he's a Lannister. He needs to be a Lannister, not a Kingsguard, trying to make him disavow his honor. 
Aries's one-off chapter is kind of a microcosm view of this vacuum of like a non-incest Jamie Cersei. Plays it out in one chapter, right? One POV, and then we move on and we know what happens from there for poor Aries Oakheart. Yeah, microcosm, especially of like the beginning of how, how Jamie got into this mess. But woman, man. Woman. So allegedly. But Ari's is his cloak, and he's worried that they'll be discovered. He doesn't want to be seen as an oathbreaker, and quails at the thought of Doran finding out. Arian laughs at this because she's definitely not a virgin, which Doran definitely knows, and she uses this time to effectively talk shit about Doran, saying he'll do nothing about it. Yeah, they argue, and Arian is like, you should not dump me. And he's like, I should dump you. And then he's like putting his clothes on. His tunic is ripped in half. He's very annoyed about this thing with his tunic. And Aryan kind of mocks him. She's like, maybe your other princess can sew it up and you should wear it backwards under your robe. Yeah, I mean, I guess it has been 10 years for him. I'm like, damn, Aries, do you just like not understand the concept of a walk of shame? But <laughs> understandably, I guess not. That's literally his job. Speaking of walk of shame outfits, uh, I think this fashion hour thing is so important for Ari's right here. Like the chapter starts out with him pondering about his cloak and the three different versions he bought bought of it or brought of it. And now that I think about it, like Ari's is supposed to be that guy, right, who's so straight laced about his job in many ways, and he just like wears the same thing every day. Yeah. I think that's what it's supposed to be, like, the same white shirt every single morning. And he explicitly thinks about how he feels naked without the cloak on. And especially in how it contrasts with uh, Jamie and his use of the different outfits, going between them as part of his identity as a Kingsguard or as a Lannister, how he presents all of that. And he's unsure if he's either, but he doesn't feel naked without either of those outfits. He feels, at this point, perfectly comfortable going through them and portraying different parts as necessary, and his story does in fact start out with him in a very similar position as Ari's, wearing something else and trying to pretend to be someone else, because they're all sneaking around. Uh, Jamie's kind of in a different place geographically, but as Arian says, he is not his white cloak, and I find this idea I'm going to I'm going to really draw this torn silk shirt out thing really far and stretch it. But I find that torn silk shirt and clothing as a metaphor for Ari's characterization. Interesting here, though, because like it, it is torn, right, during the act of sex with Arianne. And Ari's has broken his vows and will definitely uh, continue to do so in different ways in a bit by the end of this chapter. So that that tearing of the shirt, sort of uh, sullying it, the soiled night, if you will, soiled clothing, uh, and the idea of putting it on backward, which is kind of what he does with his king's guard vows by protecting Brisella, his princess and his queen, and then playing queen maker with Arianne. Like it's a backwards interpretation of his vows in terms of like what it means to protect a member of the royal family. It it doesn't quite mean like what if we just crown this one instead. That's that I don't know that that's like part of the job, and then the idea of Marcella stitching it back up, which she wouldn't, 
she won't do this, but it, it plays into this idea, I think, of her as a princess or as liege, you know, waving away the sins or dishonor, this this idea of a pardon. I don't think that's really how it works, and it's not going to absolve him in, or anything. It, you know, just just thoughts. Just thoughts. No, you've definitely given me something to think about, because it also reminds me of how Sansa Stark is this last idea of honor for Brienne, Jamie, and even Sandor in a few ways, right? Uh, in, in these Kingsguard kind of figures, these knights, whether they are true or not figures. And especially when you say the idea of Marcella stitching his cloak back up or stitching him up as far as socially waving away his sins, which isn't going to happen either way. It reminds me of Sansa with her needle, her sewing needle, right? And that uh, Sansa Stark is my last chance for honor. That is what Marcella is for Ares. Uh, that's why this is so hard for him and why he's walking away because he thinks, you know, this is my chance to prove myself as something different, to prove myself like Alistar, to prove myself like Olivar, uh, of, of these past big members of, of my house. This is my time to be someone, to be different. And he can't conceive of what it means to be different from whatever the white cloak is supposed to be. Because now he does think he is the White Cloak, and now I'm thinking of uh, Mance Raider, right? Mm. His his cloak got all torn up, and he just made a new version of himself. He's like, fine, if I can't be who I want to be here, the cloak is not me. And it gets sewn back up with different patches of red, and he's like, I like it. It's fashionable and meaningful, and that girl gave me this expensive thing and just reshapes himself yeah arianne offers to send him new clothes she's like whatever i'm rich <laughs> and he says that would actually just draw more attention to this it's very much like sorry about your walk of shame here's new boxers or i'm sending you back your clothes yeah and she's like little rich girl does not understand why it doesn't work right <laughs> i mean like, I, I, well, I can see it working for most other people but i i there's definitely something different here. A little bit of sensitivity about the topic. Yeah, and he comes out and he's like, I just want to end this. And she's like, you hurt me. Your words of love were lies. If you loved me, you wouldn't leave me. And he's like, I swore a vow. And she's like, well, I drink moon tea, so it doesn't matter. There's no proof that we fucked. Like, it's fine. And I can't marry you anyway. I'm a fucking princess. And she, like, does flirtatiously comment, I could keep you as a paramour, though. And she is taking this not seriously. And Moon Tea was a really big climax in A Storm of Swords, right, for Liza. And I think there's a huge focus on fertility throughout A Feast for Crows, and even in Dance with Dragons with Daenerys's plot. But in Feast, just to pull a few of these moments out, two chapters before this chapter, we get the Kraken's daughter, where Asha references the woods witch that she met, who taught her to brew moon tea. That is a very different experience than the chapter that comes right after that, Circe 3, the one prior to this, where Circe discusses her own woods witch with Tyena, Maggie the Frog. We later have Circe 10, where she lays moon tea crime out there about Marjorie through Pycelle, which of course was planted by Tyena, and of course... Jamie meets Jane Westerling, who is given abortificence to ruin her fertility. There's this interesting depiction of power being attached to fertility for women in this story because of agency only coming that way uh, throughout all of the published works, but especially on this run of chapters like Circe, 
holding on to her diminishing power through Tommen, Asha, who has the privilege to be able to love freely in her culture and is not currently expected to continue carrying a line by birthing children, Jane, who has no agency and was not allowed to perform her wifely duties in that manner, and of course Ariane, who has easy access to Moonti, is in a much more progressive culture than many of the other female characters dealing with fertility, and, I mean, let's be real, in the main area of Westeros, like, everything Cersei's eye can see, abortion would totally be a crime and is a crime for the nobles, right? Like, small folk... It's sad, but if shit happens to their kids, no one cares. But nobility? You can't just hide a kid or kill it off easily, you know? It's not... People know. They'll be like, Cersei has this many kids, and they're this old, and they should look like this by this age. Yeah, like, they're expected to, and it's... I mean, what Cersei did, that's not allowed, because their their job or their expectation is to create heirs. So that's why it's, like, a big deal. So yeah, absolutely, and I, it, as you said, Moon Tea seems to come up a lot more in this book. Arian asks him if he thinks he's the only Kingsguard who has ever loved a woman, and we launch into some of the Kingsguard, present and past. Ari's present gossip that he doesn't audibly share with Arian was like, you know, Boros Blount visited the Street of Silk quite a bit, Preston Greenfield called on a draper's wife when the draper was away... But he does share some historical tidbits, such as Terence Toyne, who, as we know, was found abed with the king's mistress. And then people are like, that sucked, because then Aemon the Dragon Knight died because of all this. Arianne, who then puts forward, she's like, what about Lucamore the Lusty, with three wives and 16 kids? Not so romantic. His brothers gelded him, and he was sent to the wall and left the child, the children weeping, and this woman was... 16 children <laughs> she puts forward then you know again the dragonite and how he allegedly got the queen pregnant and Ares is like i'm not gonna hear any of that slander it was just a lie so Igan could set him aside and put damon blackfire forward yeah siblings would never fuck that would just be too weird yeah i mean i do think that for Nerys, it was probably actually Igan's kid and Igan yeah. was just a huge asshole no um, i mean especially with the blackfire rebellion but I am just putting it out there. Siblings wouldn't fuck. Never. I mean, like, at least there, they'd be like, well, that's not as that. That's expected for the Targaryens. But yes, and, I, and it's good job, Jamie and Cersei. You've hidden it from the biggest, biggest gossip. The person always searching for the juicy goss, Ari's Oakheart. He hasn't noticed. Yeah. But he is still inspired, like, by this talking about these kings guard with Ariane. Ares is like, I won't be Ares the Unworthy. I will not soil this cloak. Ariane then kind of tells him her own experience, right, with the cloak. Her great uncle Lewin had worn it long ago when she was little, and she remembers him playing with her and tickling her. She announces that he kept a paramour, which Ares is pretty surprised about, and this reminds me of my favorite theory. Shout out to Stressed Almost Writer over on A Song of Ice and Fire Reddit. This theory is that Lewin's paramour is Septa Lamore. Uh, a few of the different points that are made. 
Strastamos writer goes on to say, it could be a coincidence, but she meets the big marks. And of course, it reminds me of Ariane's quote, a great knight with a paramour. She's an old woman now, but she was a rare beauty in her youth. So she has to be alive currently. She's older and she's a rare beauty. She would have been at court with the Dornish. The Dornish men who had come to court with the Princess Elia were in the prince's confidence as well, particularly Prince Lewin Martel, the World of Ice and Fire says. Prince Lewin is very concerned about the Targaryen children during the Kingsguard dream, the guilt dream that Jamie has, the, the, the Weirwood dream. He is one of the people in the dream that says, and the children, them as well. Barristan and other Kingsguard would know that Lewin had kept a paramour, as it's hard to hide from your brothers that we've learned. Barristan is quoted as saying, Prince Lewin was my sworn brother. In those days, there were few secrets amongst the Kingsguard. I know he kept a paramour. He did not feel there was any shame in that. I think this is such a solid theory because it just cements that D-list pretender feel of Aegon's gang. A half-maester, a soiled septa, and, you know, if she was in King's Landing when it fell, it might make sense Tywin sent her to the septas. I mean, he didn't have a great reputation for how he treated women, see the reins and tarbacks being turned into silent sisters. I think it really makes me feel pretty conclusive in that, like, it could be innocent world-building, but I feel like the Aegon crew amounting to, like, nothing, being nothing but, like, D-list players... I feel like that has to happen. Like, they aren't really important people that we heard about during the rebellion. They're background people. John Connington's the most famous of them all. Yeah, I think that's uh, the case. And of course, as we can see, you know, we didn't hear about this until later. And Lamore wasn't conceived until later. So it it would make sense for it to just be like, wow. These things all go together. So... We have this line of, My uncle always said that it was the sword in a man's hand that determined his worth, not the one between his legs. She went on. So spare me all your pious talk of soiled cloaks. It is not our love that has dishonored you, but it is the monsters you've served and the brutes you've called your brothers. Arianne's willfulness rings very egret to me here. Her talk of freedom and of her way... In this circumstance, the tragedy will fall on the you-know-nothing segment of this relationship, Ares Oakheart, not Ariane. Uh, but it does bring me back to A Storm of Swords. John Three had a lot of these feelings that we see Ares seed back and forth to Ariane. And Ares is feeling a lot of that in this manipulation because he's there to play a role and to guard Marcella, not get busted up in love. We have John in Storm of Swords. I'm playing a part. I had to do it once to prove I'd abandoned my vows. I had to make her trust me. It need never happen again. He was still a man of the Night's Watch, a son of Eddard Stark. He had done what needed to be done, proved what needed to be proven. Later in the passage, Even my father stumbled once when he forgot his marriage vows and sired a bastard. John vowed to himself it would be the same with him. It will never happen again. It happened twice more that night, and again in the morning when she woke to find him hard. Like a pair of rutting dogs, John thought afterward. Was that what he'd become? 
I'm a man of the night's watch, a small voice inside insisted, but every night it seemed a little fainter, and when Egret kissed his ears or bit his neck, he could not hear it at all. Was this how it was for my father? he wondered. Was he as weak as I am when he dishonored himself in my mother's bed? I'm rusty, I'm sorry. No, this was a treat. I didn't even expect it. I was like, oh my god, it's happening! Wow, who could have known that Chloe would bring this Easter egg back in for us? Oh, Holy Easter shit! Egg on. I was so surprised. I was like, oh my god! What a throwback! Aries and John are both working to have a place and identity while honoring these roles they're in. No, they aren't the normal version of their Kingsguard or Night's Watch roles, either. Ares is working remotely from Dorne, doing occasional conference calls, but really it's a relaxed workplace environment for him besides the racial tensions. He's having a hard time assimilating into Dornish culture, so much that Dornish culture pushes him out. You know, like, with death and shit. John's on a covert mission in the north to take down the free folk from the inside, and he learns he relates more to their culture and comes to empathize with these people, thinking there's a way for everyone to just get along. Both are in these roles that seem natural to their position as younger sons or descendants or bastards, and of course, they have familial bonds with the colony they join, like Ares and his ancestors in the Kingsguard versus John and his quote-unquote, ancestors in the Night's Watch. Ares's mini-story in Feast is a sandbox story that, no, maybe it does not need another full retelling, right? It's a story about a dumb rich boy with daddy issues who joins an elite police force that upholds a horrible, rotten system. He's then seduced by a sexy Dornish princess who causes his death because he can't keep his dick in his pants, and we know that's a problem because not enough blood to operate both parts of the body at the same time giving it a couple chapters to introduce it to reiterate some strong themes and history that we see played with throughout Jamie, John, Cersei, Tyrion, Arianne, and even Quentin's chapters, it performs really well attached to Arianne's chapters. I think it benefits all of these plots to enrich and fulfill it, but at the same time, I would say I'm very happy for Aerys's one-and-done hit-and-run chapter to be almost over and gone. One was definitely enough. I feel really bad for the guy. Like, what a sap, but not enough room for his waste moving forward. I'm glad George at least understood that. Yeah, George hit it and quit it. <laughs> and yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I I mean, I just kind of feel like Loki, Ari's again, lived and died for Arianne's character development. Good. I I don't think that's bad. And, like, as we said in Arianne's chapters, through Ari's, like, she's introduced as this confident, savvy, femme fatale, but turns out she's actually very insecure, right? Like, she's different from the way she's perceived. And uh, regarding that lived and died, a few episodes ago, we were asked, if you'll remember, Chloe, about Boros Blount's fate, and you and I had talked about it in a comment from Elio Garcia on Reddit, and it sounds like Blount and Oakheart's fates are very tied on that meta level. Elio said of the, the draft that he had seen back then, the two main differences that I recall from the draft are that Ari's Oakheart surrenders along with Arianne rather than getting killed, and that Boros Blount is described looking increasingly ill and dies by the end of the partial manuscript. So... 
George decided, hmm, what if we killed Ares right now instead? And then Blount survives for a little bit longer. And the rest of his chapter, as you showed with John just now and his storyline and those parallels, is a great job of, I think, just... Ari's chapter is here to sharpen a lot of the internal conflicts going on with a bunch of the other characters who are uh, just kind of more important in the story. Like, Ari's had this one chapter and it was like, great, thank you for setting things up and telling us about everyone else. And you also compared Ari's just now to one guy with vows, John, and then there is, of course, the other one. We did a bunch of chapters on him. Again, Jamie, because Jamie has been operating quite interestingly, as though he believed uh, one of these lines that Arianne of, my uncle always said that it was the sword in a man's hand that determined his worth, not the one between his legs. And when it comes to Jamie, right, it was like the sword his sword in hand that allowed him to recklessly follow the other sword between his legs when it came to Cersei. And it was his martial prowess that became a justification and the power for him to just do anything that he wanted and get away with it. And now he doesn't have a sword. He has to figure out his own worth and who he is. Also, aside from his penis, he just has to figure out who he is on the inside that has nothing to do with swords. Holy shit! And then Arianne says, like, so spare me all your pious talk of soiled cloaks. It is not our love that has dishonored you, uh, but the monsters you served and the brutes you called your brothers, which I think is also very true, as we'll see in a moment. For But for Jamie, like, he turned against the monster that he served, and also because of that, breaks his vows to his brothers, uh, the, the other brothers. Um, and it was, well, actually it was also because of... His penis that he did turns out the one actually really bad thing. One of the many bad things. But the the bad thing that we all remember from the beginning of the story where he threw Bran out the window, so. Yeah. Dude. It was love that dishonored him. <laughs> turns out people in general fuck up when it comes to sexual biles. I mean, A Song of Ice and Fire, Lyanna and Rhaegar, they fucked. Here's the story. We're in it. We're in it. There was a So Spake Martin. Way back in 1999, if you can believe it, before Ares was playing this big of a role, someone asked, Why were men like Marin Trant, Boros Blount, Preston Greenfield, and Ares Oakheart ever accepted as white swords? Nobody thinks much of their skill. So George had the following to say, but obviously this comment must have stuck because he ended up fleshing out one of these men, which was Ares Oakheart. Sometimes the best knights are not eager to take such stringent vows, and you have to settle for who you can get. Other factors enter into the choices. Politics, favoritism, horse trading, rewards for past service. It's a plum appointment for a younger son, like Ares, or a knight from a minor house. Less so for the great houses. Also, Robert had five vacancies to fill at once, an unusual situation. Imagine the nominations we might get if six of the nine members of the Supreme Court died within a few months. That's I would funny. rather not! I just want to put this out here that 1999 George can suck it. Holy shit. Why would you say that, George? So um, naive. And I mean, even here, you can see where Ares took flight, right? Like, this, Ares was not a part of the initial five vacancies that were filled. It seems in 1999, maybe George had imagined him as so, but now... George, of course, has changed it. Now it's 290 AC. Uh, George goes on to say that institutions like the Kingsguard change over time. 
The original Knights of the Garter were warriors, the strongest, bravest, deadliest men of their time, with an average age under 30. The present Knights of the Garters are octogenarians, and their parades and processions of wheelchairs and walkers, which I think that's a great way to look at the King's Garden now, that they are not the men they were in the early 280s, all riled up, ready for a new king after a rebellion, fresh blood. Uh, it's changed, and Ares coming in in 290 is a big change, obviously, but he's been there a decade and not done anything. Till now. Yeah, he, like, participated in a few tourneys and was like, that was cool. That was fun. I like my job. Yeah, he had a cushy job. Put yeah. on the white shirt every day. That's it. Tie up the tie, go to work. Just kidding, it's a clip-on. Yeah, he doesn't think much about his bosses, right? Because he's, like, offended at what Arianne says. He's like, Robert's not a monster, and Arianne's, well, like, well, he's not as bad as Joffrey was, but he still climbed onto his throne over corpses of children, and, I mean, she has a point. Alright, like, Ned was ready to disown Robert for this, if you'll remember. Like, he was like, fuck you, fuck all of you, I'm leaving. And the only thing that brought them back together was he's like, I'm really sad about my sister. I think you might be pretty sad about her too. And Ariana's a point. <laughs> Ari thinks of the time, she doesn't know about this, but really she does, because Ari thinks of the times that he had to hit Sansa Stark at the boy's command. And how he had lit a candle to the warrior and thanks when he was chosen to come to Dorne. Yeah, but Joffrey is dead and Tommen's the king. And Tommen isn't his brother. Ariane can agree with that. But she also is like, yeah, but he's not his sister either. And Ares, of course, cedes to that. Last time he saw Tommen, Tommen was a chubby little boy who was crying. Marcella never shed a tear, not the entire voyage, even though she was leaving home to seal an alliance with her maidenhead. We get this passage that is utterly true. The truth was, the princess was braver than her brother, and brighter, and more confident as well. Her wits were quicker, her courtesies more polished. Nothing ever daunted her, not even Joffrey. The women are the strong ones, truly. He was thinking not only of Marcella, but of her mother and his own, of the Queen of Thorns, of the Red Viper's pretty deadly sand snakes, and of Princess Ariane Martel, hers most of all. Damn, talking about putting the pussy on a pedestal. That's Ari's right now. So, she's not named here. So Ari's mother isn't named here, or turns out formally so within the context of the story at all. Guess she's named in the appendix or something, or in something meta, but he does think of his mother as among the strong ones, and her name is, turns out, Arwen Oakhart. And I do think it's notable that Ares thinks of his mother amongst uh, the strong ones. Ares is the youngest son of Arwen, and yet we hear very little of his older brothers. His father died, and as we see, especially in the Clash chapters, of Kat and in Davos, Lady Oakheart is actually the one who is doing the politicking and is the one that people associate uh, as the leader of House Oakheart. When they're asking for certain allegiances, they're like, where the hell is House Oakheart? And House Oakheart, um, as you said, has a storied history, and they are one of those houses that, you know, if they fall in with your cause, lends a lot of that credibility because they are old in honor. And they were, in fact, quite loyal to Renly when he died 
then they went in with the Lannisters, which I think is interesting because, you know, that means that had things in the story escalated, Ares might have been called to take arms against his house, but essentially his mother, Lady Oakheart, has been the one navigating a lot of this very complex political situation in Westeros right now. So that explains why it is, and she must be quite strong considering, again, Ares is the youngest of... I believe, I don't know if it's just her children or if his brothers, and so none of them are ruling the house then. No, not at all. Significant. Yeah, he is definitely put between a rock and a hard place, and by the rock, I mean Dorn. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and this the hard place is Dick? Well, that too. That too. So, Ariane begins to argue that Marcella is more fit for rule than her siblings, but Ares doesn't agree because the throne doesn't follow that rule of secession like Dorne does. This angers Ariane, who then is like, well, if I'm doing some math, what you're saying is that my rule is wrong, Ares. You believe that I, a woman, cannot rule. And he's like, that's not what I was saying. And she goes ahead and reads him a quick history. Viserys intended Rhaenyra to follow him, but Lord Commander Kristen Cole's bitch ass decided otherwise while the king died, setting brother against sister in the Dance of the Dragons. Some said Kristen Cole acted out of ambition, some thought he was defending Andal customs, and others whispered he was spiting his ex-lover Rhaenyra, or rumored ex-lover. All of this coming to you soon on HBO Max in House of the Dragon. Everyone get excited or just check out our Patreon episodes at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon about the Dance of the Dragons. I digress. Ares considers what Ariane is saying, and Ariane then further says, maybe Ares's purpose is to right Kristen Cole's wrongs and help her with something special. Because her dad's planning to take Marcella to the water gardens to keep her from her rightful throne, not to keep Marcella safe. Oberyn wanted to crown her, but this would be nothing different than prison with fig trees and fountains, which coincidentally is what Arianne will have soon. Hota wouldn't like his presence either. There's a little line. The big Norvoshi captain with a scarred face had always made him feel profoundly uneasy. They say he sleeps with that great axe beside him. Hota kind of feels like the Illin pain for Ares. He really does, and I, I don't know if perhaps Hota is meant to be our insight then into Illin Payne, and is the closest we'll get to an Illin Payne POV, revealing that he is in fact quite misunderstood. I also think it's funny that, you know, Arianne points out like uh fake trees and fountains don't mean it's not an imprisonment. And I'm like, interesting. Ares, would you like to think about Sansa again? Mm-hmm. And her doesn't. and her horse going in circles for hours. And he doesn't. Yeah. <sighs> yep. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. I mean, I mean, I guess now that I think about it, that's kind of the case for her. Uh, maybe he doesn't because it. George doesn't want to call it out because he doesn't want to set it up as like that was an imprisonment, but her state now is not because it kind of still is. Yeah. Also, it's kind of like he's not ready to admit his complicit behaviors, right? Like he's just not ready to say like, hey, maybe I am part of the bad stuff happening or yeah. was part of the bad stuff yeah also droid probably just threw this chapter together and was like i need something to go here yeah that too that too he's like i really need to get this information across easily finally though ari's caves asking what arian wants of him she's like it's simple i want you to put a crown on marcella's head 
be the Kingmaker 2.0. And Ares is like, I swore an oath to Joffrey, though. Arian points out that the oath that he swore was to Joffrey, who is now dead. And now, like, it's Marcellus' turn. She should be next on the throne, not Tommen. Tommen can have Storm's End and Casterly Rock in the meantime. But Marcella, she says, must sit the throne. This chapter reiterates it, but the Queenmaker plot is not new. I've said it before, this plot was happening back in Storm with Oberyn. We get this line from Tyrion's chapters. No matter what happened, Tyrion had the satisfaction of knowing he'd kicked Lord Tywin's plans to splinters. If Prince Oberyn won, it would further inflame Highgarden against the Dornish. Mace Tyrell would see the man who crippled his son, helping the dwarf who almost poisoned his daughter to escape his rightful punishment. And if the mountain triumphed, Doran Martell might well demand to know why his brother had been served with death instead of the justice Tyrion promised him. Dorn might crown Myrcella after all. Tyrion accurately calls what is likely going to happen in this plot. Of course, Doran knew about Arianne's plan. It's been on the tongues of any passerby. Anyone that is remotely Dornish has been talking about this for ages. Uh, this is pretty much where all the tensions are settling. Mace Tyrell will still probably see the man who crippled his son helping the dwarf. Like, yes, Oberyn's dead, Tyrion's gone, but... Mace Tyrell's going to watch all this go down and see the Dornish come to the capital, and Cersei is paranoid. She's going to cling to the Dornish because she hates the roses. Yeah, and Mace Tyrell's, like, nursing his grudges, whereas it sounds like Willis is like, I don't, whatever. Willis didn't care. Willis and Oberyn totally exchanged fanfic. Like, they just sent each other links to different AO3s they were into, you know? He's like... I want to just pet dogs. Would you like to read my fanfic about my dogs? Is maybe this even you or one, is it Maybe Willis? even a fanfic about a cat named Oakheart. Oh my god, from Wild Warriors? Wait, no, the Warriors, not Wild Warriors. I, I think it's just the Warriors. I, don't, I didn't actually read it. I didn't read the entry. I was like, interesting. Um... <laughs> Arian then feeds him the best part. Marcella could dismiss him from the Kingsguard because Joffrey set a precedent. And she's like, we could even get married if we wanted to, even though before she's like, we're not getting married. I'm not gonna. <laughs> and she asks him not to make her beg. She trembles. She says she needs a knight to keep her safe because she's so vulnerable and that my dad's guards won't keep me safe. And she laughs at her father's accusations of treason, saying that they were to silence her and her cousins, and asks that he do this to save her cousins, her, and to save Marcella of what awaits her. He doesn't believe her about Doran's hidden motives she keeps talking about, and she reveals the information that she knows. Doran kept trying to marry her off to Greybeards without giving her any rule while she was alone in Sunspear, and he placed his own brother above her. His behavior has proven Ariane is not the heir he wants, including the secret letter that she read at age 14 in her father's solar that was meant for Quentin and Ironwood. The letter stated one day Quentin would rule. Ariane had cried herself to sleep for years over this. So, side note, I do think it's kind of funny that Ariane is like, my father had like Oberyn over twice a fortnight and me only twice a year. He didn't care about me or have any ambitions for me. And now that I look back on everything in this story as a whole, and especially Quentin's storyline where he basically practically never saw his dad, I'm like, wow, maybe Doran's way of showing 
huge faith and love in his children. Maybe too much faith with too little meaningful support. Unwarranted faith. Uh, was to just not see them at all. That's how you know he cares. I guess. I mean, guess that, but also the opposite side of it of like, he couldn't face them after all of his failures, after losing. I mean, it's Ned, right? It's the same idea as Ned. The marriage that is, yeah. I mean, Ned and Catalan's marriage is a little better, obviously, than what happened with Malario and Doran. Malario and Doran were, they couldn't work it out. Doran was haunted and stuck and heartbroken of everything he keeps losing and all of his plans just turning to sand in his hands. Wow, that was a rhyme. Um, I don't know. It, it's really sad because he closes himself off to his kids because he's worried he's just going to lose them. Just like Elia. Just like now Oberyn. Yeah. You know? And in closing himself off, he ends up losing them. Just like Ned with Sansa. I mean... If Ned had spent a little time chatting with Sansa, like, hey, maybe this place we're going is kind of dangerous and I need you just to communicate with me very strongly and we'll get through it together. But it might not always be great, you know, like he just kind of like didn't tell Ariane anything. And now she's like, I'm rebelling, dad, at age 20, whatever, 26, 23, 23. She's she's like old enough that I'm like. Interesting, Ariane. That's why I say some of it is Cersei-esque behavior, because I'm like, no, like, she's not as old as Cersei, but it's that feeling of when Cersei does stupid shit, and you're just like, you should, you know better, Cersei. Like, you literally know better than this. Both doing yeah. things out of paranoia. It's just, I mean, like, obviously, obviously, people still make silly mistakes at that age. She would be... 24, I think, because she's yeah. 76. I just, yeah, 20, 23 or 24, but I'm just like. I mean, said, I did stupid shit then. I do stupid shit every day. Yeah. I did stupid shit true, yesterday. True, true. I'm going to do something stupid tomorrow. Like, there's no true. point of judging a person on their age. That's silly of me, but. True. I It just feels like, you know, George got really wrapped up in writing um, a lot of these other characters as the rebellious teenager, right? Mm-hmm. As teenagers, and, and it feels like he kept that with Aria, and even though it's like she's a little bit older. Yeah. She has been infantilized in a way, right? Like, she too has been kept Doran's little princess, and now she's kind of like, okay, well, nothing's changed for the past decade of my life. This is it. So, yeah. She's acted out, man. I get it. Rebel. Yeah. Power to the to the people. So, Ares acts like he understands all of this, but in his head, he's like, I'd probably do the same thing if I had a son. I get you, Doran. What a dick. <laughs> he once more doubts what Ariane is saying, and she asks him where Quentin is, and he's like, in the bone way. But Ariane has her own little He's birds. in the bone way, sorry. Oh my god, he's out of the bone way if he keeps it up. Ariane's own little birds are saying otherwise. She's heard that Quentin's across the sea as a merchant amidst the drama of Mir, Tyrosh, Lise, and the Golden Company. The Golden Company has cancelled their current contract, which is significant because the Golden Company is so different from other sellsword brigades. I wonder if we're going to hear more about the Golden Company to do with Dorne. This is so interesting. It's a brotherhood of exiles, united by Bittersteel's dream. They want gold just as much as they want home. Lord Ironwood, who would side with them historically, as he has, knows that. He rode with Bittersteel 
three of the Blackfire Rebellions himself. Ariane goes on with her history lesson, asking if Ares knows House Toland of Ghost Hill's arms. It's a dragon eating its own tail. The dragon represents time, she says, with no beginning and no end. All things come round again. Anders Ironwood is Kristen Cole reborn, she says, about to crown Quentin against the wanton Ariane. I mean, everyone's fucking Kristen Cole reborn in this story. Yeah. There's like 20 of them. That's not a... Okay, like three or four of them. That's not a joke. Mm-hmm. It really is. But Ariane just like went out there and she just acted like all these insecurities she had about herself were things Ironwood really said. She just went and delivered it and said, Anders Ironwood is saying these things about me. And I'm like, is he? I think he's just out here raising your brother. But at the same time, as said before, and as you were saying, a lot of the insecurities and a lot of the mistakes that she's making really do mirror Cersei and her characterization. But I think it also mirrors Cersei in showing how the sexism in Westeros just like corrodes at the confidence that she has and that a lot of other people like had or any and the semblance of it and how she thinks of all the things that would not be denied her had she been born a man. And I think... It's especially telling here because, I mean, of course, power and opportunities have been denied of Cersei. We see it a lot in how Tywin treats her uh, and uh, whether or not she can be queen, right? Whereas for Arianne, like, it's so much more hurtful because it's like, wow, Dorne was supposed to be not like that. Like, the tradition was a little different there, and she thinks that these things are denied her for Quentin. Because Doran, you know, for all the hate that he has for Tywin, kind of fell into, I think, the same trap as his nemesis, his desire for vengeance against Tywin kind of led him to have a sort of similar parenting style where he keeps his children quite distant without meaning to, and he just moves them around and thinks of them as pawns. Malario left Doran because of this, and now Joanna's ghost is weeping because of this, and um, I will also point you all back to our episode that uh, where we had Fat Malda on as a guest to talk about Arianne and Cersei and some of those parallels, too. Yeah, absolutely. Marcella is the elder and better suited to the crowd. Who will defend her rights if not her Kingsguard? My sword, my life, my honor all belong to her and to you, my heart's delight. I swear, no man will steal your birthright whilst I still have the strength to lift a sword. I'm yours. What would you have of me? All, she knelt to kiss his lips, all my love, my true love, my sweet love, and forever. But first... Ask, and it is yours. Marcella. (sighs) I love that House Tolan comes back into play in The Winds of Winter. Super meta, because in the long run, that is symbolic of what's happening to Team Dorn, right? A dragon eating its own tail. Poor doomed mm-hmm. Tommen, Marcella, and of course, poor doomed Dorn. And Ares. Yeah. But, God, all gonna die. Absolutely, for Tommen and Marcella, there's like a line in here where Ares is like, Tommen is like a sweet little man, and I'm like, Tommen's a sweet little man! Oh, sweet little roasted guy. Marcella's a sweet little girl. I remember the chapters, and she's so nice and so smart. She's very clever, and she's only, she's barely ten. We're children. We're supposed to be childish, yes. 
Anyway, the the this moment where he calls her his heart's delight, it kind of reminds me of that realm's delight uh, that Rhaenyra was called for some reason. And then, um... That's interesting because you can see in a way, like, very much he's framed as the Kristen Cole, obviously, and it's interesting because that is the one answer we don't have, right? Like, we don't know why Kristen Cole was such a dick. We don't know what changed. Was it Alicent Hightower's pussy? We just don't know what really did it. Was it Rhaenyra rejecting him? There's all the differing accounts. We're never going to get the straight answer. Maybe House of the Dragon on HBO Max will give us the answers. But uh, calling her Heart's Delight or Realm's Delight, you know, that that's such a strong connection here. And it is absolutely Dance the Dragon's material is what we are witnessing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Arianne's trying to start here, even if she doesn't know it. My sword, my life, my honor, all belong to her and to you. And I'm just like, Aries, I don't think it works like that. I don't know. Maybe you don't understand the concept of all. And I, I just thought, okay. Um, and anyway, Aries does for Arianne in this chapter what Jamie would not do for Cersei at the end of this book, as we saw with like, yeah. Burn these text messages! Delete! Delete! Also, what he did in the middle of this book that Ares could not do. Jamie, I'm ghosting! We're breaking up. Ares, I'm gonna go over there and break up with her, but... I guess not. And then fights for her. It's an interesting play because Jamie seems to empathize and understand, but it's too little too late, is kind of how his plot feels. Like, yeah. he'll do good enough things but it's unlikely that he will make some big recovery to be the world's greatest arthur dane white knight Ares is dumb and does it's far too little too late that he understands it in fact it's so too little too late that he understands it so much that he runs into the fucking sword as we've discussed cersei doesn't get it she won't get it just like Ares refuses to get it is not going to get it that will be her downfall Ariane gets it and she has that moment of clarity of empathy uh, where she's probably going to understand it all, right? Like, she's very clever. She's raised well. She is charismatic. She understands the people. And here we are. She is going to be, again, just like Jamie, too little, too late, I think. And I think that's an interesting parallel between the Jamie, Cersei, Ariane, Aries, that, like, it's such similar situations. I don't know. It's it's very interesting. Again, this is an REN chapter now, so. It, I mean, it was always an REN chapter. The whole point yeah. was, like, in my opinion, is that Ares' chapter was meant to set up Ariane as this one thing and then be like, but here's all the other things about her. Yeah. And there's so. more here, like the framework of the entire chapter, how Ares' chapter accompanies Ariane's chapters so well and while it's presented in a way we don't know it's Ariane at first that one and done quality should be lingered on because there's something that we actually spoke about way back in the day when we talked Ariane for patrons and stranger tier and above and Ariane one and two the winds of winter uh, that Ariane is battling this line of girlhood and womanhood in the winds of winter she thinks of and misses Aries but in a very different way it's a bittersweet it never could have been 
way. Like, she's looking back and realizing that she was young, she was dumb, she takes responsibility for her actions with him, and she's regretful and sorrowful that he was this big, dumb man-child who didn't hold himself accountable in her grasp. She admits to herself she'd been using him, and that she was playing silly games, and that now she's in the big time and she can't make those silly mistakes. And I find that really raw and really interesting that she can admit that to herself. I mean, he's dead, so it's like, what's the point of not admitting it, I guess? But she admits that to herself, and she's like, wow, I was silly, I was stupid, I was just playing games. And I think it's a shift, but again, I don't know if it's enough to change that worldview. Jamie had enough of a chance in his upbringing and privilege to get out in the world, to see how people lived, not just in the Westerlands or at the palace at the Red Keep, but in the field, right? Like, he went out on his horse even just last week in the book. He was out on his horse. Uh, Empathy is a recent concept in Western thought. It didn't appear before the 18th century, so I think that's relevant to keep hold of when you think about characters and people and things and empathy links that emotional experience to another individual's experience right like when you think plato he doesn't ever address empathy directly but argues our souls are composed of a rational aspect capable of acquiring knowledge an aspect that moves the soul toward acquiring the knowledge and betters itself that links it to emotions and jamie obviously has learned a little more empathy in his more recent chapters, we see him at his last chapter in A Dance with Dragons 1. Uh, we see him looking for his chance of honor, his last chance for Sansa Stark to save her, and of course, looking at Titus Blackwood when his family alignment should clearly be with Jonos Bracken. He's busy trying to respect Titus Blackwood, the man that he knows his father wouldn't have tried to work with. Ariane is kind of the same way when she realizes, oh, I was a bit foolish. It turns out Quentin was not stealing my birthright. Turns out my dad had some bigger plans for me to check out, though, gonna be real, it kind of seemed like a, a shitty arrangement. Like, oh, you might be queen, Ariane. You go figure it out. Good luck, girl. Uh, let me know how it goes. Love, dad. <sighs> there's, there's just a lot to think about with all these vows and all these treaties and pacts that were signed long ago. It's a bummer. I hope, for you and mine's sake, that Ariane does survive. I personally don't think she will, which makes me sadder. Sadder about it all. I don't know. I I think there's a lot to point towards her not surviving. I just think it would be interesting if she had to live with realizing, Guilt. like, wow, I was still just rolling the dice with all these people's lives, thinking that she was being smarter about it, or maybe she she was, and maybe she just knew, and like many of the other people in this story, decides to go down that same path, quite like uh, Stannis, or Tywin, or many of the other ones of being like, well, this is the cost, right? Or even Daenerys, as she learns uh, in the Game of Thrones, like, this is the cost of the Iron Throne. Yeah. If I want it, it's not just going to be Ari's Oakheart. Many uh, others have... are gonna die. Say the word, say dragon, Ariane, and it's war. Yeah, and I mean, like, as as you said, like, Doran was just like, I mean, maybe you'll be queen. And I think that for him, the issue was that he thought that planning it was a, made it basically as sure 
as done. And it's possible that Arianne maybe falls into some of those same traps and, and th of thinking of being like, well, I planned it and this is what I, th I have planned going. And therefore it's definitely going to work, which we can see like that seems to be what he thought she thought for this Marcella plan. She's like, it's going to go great. She's going to be queen. And that's definitely what Doran thought about Arianne. He's like, you know, it's going to go great. She's going to marry Viserys and become queen. And didn't think about, like, wow, what about all of the other parts of actually making it happen? Yeah. Step one, keep Viserys alive. Step two, meet. Oh, um, they said, and then they started to scream. Yeah. I saw this interesting, uh, I'll have to find it and link it, post on Reddit recently where they said that Doran just sent the wrong people for a bunch of things. Like, to fetch Daenerys back, he shouldn't have sent Quentin. He should have sent Oberyn, who already had a lot of connections there from his time mm -hmm. in the Sellsword Companies. He should have sent Arienne or someone who was actually interested in politicking. To King's Landing. To King's Landing. Quentin can just chill. That's what he wanted anyway. Yeah, I think, too, it's kind of, this is like, the whole entire breakdown with Ariane and everyone, like, look, this is the deal. You're going here. You're going here. You're doing this. This feels like it wasn't his first choice. Like, he wanted a different thing to happen, but he fucked up that first time by sending over into King's Landing and yada yada. Though, at the same time, was it what he wanted? Because, like he says in this chapter... To Ares, you know, on how, uh, oh, if I, if I, something happened to Marcella there, I would have no name on it. So no one's going to say he sent Ober into King's Landing to get some murder going on or to get that, you know, like Doran, that weak motherfucker, he would never do that. But I don't know. He might he have known what he was doing. That he had some plans. He had some plans. Right. I mean, he, he just knew. didn't bank on his brother getting himself killed, and I think that's very much like Arianne here. Maybe yeah. this is a, quite a an she insight. She didn't and bank on her brother getting killed. Yeah, like what Doran also thought about, and that's why he's so reluctant. And it's understandable now. That's why he's so reluctant to make moves too fast, because uh, he's like, "Man, I was a foolish, willful boy." Playing at the Game of Thrones, so maybe his parents arranged it. Whatever, uh, like a drunkard rolling dice and. My sister and her children died because of it. Yeah. Well, Aries, we'll come back to you. Well, yeah, I guess we'll come back to him-ish. Kinda. In a Kinda. way. On the other side. Yeah. That was good, though. I think this was good, because I feel really like we explored Aries's character. He's gonna die. He's a big sap. I feel real bad for him. We should have seen the signs in this chapter, though, I mean. Yeah, uh, and I, I think part of it is he, as we said, he that boy wanted to die. And you talked about John and Jamie, and I think he had difficulty, right, integrating that shadow self, his guilt, and the his sins and shortcomings into his person and being like, wow, well... I guess that happens and trying to like wrestle with it and accept that this is part of who he is, whereas John and Jamie accept it. 
Right, like Jamie accepted it a long time ago. Maybe it went the other way, and he just let his persona become engulfed by his shadow. But John's like, "Well, I did these things. I'm gotta learn from it." And yes, yes, all of you condemning other Night's Watch people, I did in fact go on the other side of the wall. I did lay with a wildling woman, and yes, I am letting them through this wall. Yeah, and they're just people, and he he learned to accept that and live with that. Jamie has is learning to live with that. Ari's was like, I can't. I can't live with this. Ari's couldn't do it. Hit it and quit it. <sighs> quit life. This has been truly an eye-opening experience discussing Aries Oakheart with you, Eliana. <laughs> Thank you all Can't so much for listening that. in to our Aries Oakheart POV. Our hit it and quit it, our one and done. This is it. One night stand. Our one night stand with Aries Oakheart. One night in What Aries. he couldn't do. He couldn't do it. You know, one night in Aries makes a kind woman humble. Um, one night in Aries makes a... <sighs> if you haven't, please check us out over on social media at Twitter. Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, or at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Feel free to send us any thoughts you had about our Hit It and Quit It episode with Aries Oakheart. Yes, and of course, be sure to subscribe to us. Next week, we are going to be putting out a His Dark Materials episode, as it is the last week of the month. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, and then, of course, join us again in August as we pick up with our Aswaf POV read through this time on the other side, not with Ari's, but with Ario, Hota, the Speedwagon. You can find us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, where this is all hosted. Acast? Did I say that already? Allegedly also Overcast. Um, you name it, we're there. I said a lot of things. It's probably there. And if you haven't, and you have a few coins dangling around in your pocket, run over to patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where we put out a special episode every month in a Song of Ice and Fire special episode every other month, and every other other month it is a His Dark oh Materials God. special episode. Uh, this month we will be discussing the Regencies during Aegon Three, so tune in for that. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Goodbye, Aerie Sokart. We hardly knew ye. Darn. <laughs>